What's up, everyone? Thanks for tuning in. Asian bitches done under a podcast about sharing information and perspectives from the Asian diasporas in society and culture. We encourage you to subscribe to our show via Apple, Google, or Spotify. If you have enjoyed our episodes, please support us by giving us a five-star rating and get your friends on board to listen to us. Finally, we would love you to support this podcast by donating to our Buy Me a Coffee program. Your wonderful support and donations will help us to continue creating the platform for diversity and inclusivity. Make sure you check out the episode show notes for any collaborations we're working with to promote. Thanks again, and we hope you will enjoy today's episode. Well, this is Jessie. Hi, this is Helen. And we are Asian Bitches Down Under. This is Jesse Two. You're Helen talking to Helen Stenbeck. And we, it is Friday, the 6th of May, two days before um, Helen's most dreaded day, <laughs> which we will not mention. <laughs> because I feel like uh, um, since the, since the ever since Helen became a mother, she has been... I mean, I, I don't want to, I don't want to, you know... You don't um, want to go into the details of diminish, it. Because... Diminish, yeah. Just because, just like, every year we spend so much energy talking about it don't we it's exhausting yeah, yeah it is exhausting. And, and also because um i sat in a um health summit mm-hmm. a few days ago yes which was very um emotionally taxing for me um, oh. because i heard the experience of a lot of white women talking about their miscarriage and i will say it was all white women who were talking about their um in, in their experiences with miscarriage mm-hmm. um and it was so heavy helen and i came out feeling really I mean, I'm glad. I'm, I'm glad that people are feeling as though they can... White people, mm-hmm. I will mention that. White people are feeling like they can come out and talk about something as devastating as miscarriage. Uh, I feel as though, um, for me, it feels um, heartening that it's not all just like roses and chocolate and pink pajamas. Like, people are yeah, acknowledging that there are a lot of the mothers. women out there mm-hmm. that struggle to become mothers and want yes. to become mothers. And there's a lot of... It's become so politicized as though, like, I feel as though more people are standing up saying, hey, um, I want my experience to be listened to. Yes. Often I will say these women are white and they feel, like, entitled and confident enough to speak about their own experience and saying, oh, I demand that my experience is centered. Mm-hmm. Which I, like, completely uh, support. I just kind of hope that we give as much reverie and platform to Indigenous First Nations women, women of colour, disabled women, you know. Mm -hmm. Um, That is my hope, personally. Mm -hmm. Uh, I didn't expect to start this pod, actually, giving a little speech about that, actually, Helen. I kind of wanted to just race into the stuff we did this week because, (laughs) you know, it it has been a very wild week for me. But before I go into it, Helen, how are you? Yeah, I'm doing well, I think. Apart from you start mentioning that the day that I kind of hated the most of the year, Mother's Day, because we're doing this recording a little bit earlier than usual. So yeah. I've just dropped off uh, my younger child at school. Like you said, you don't want to go into it, but I still want to mention it. Oh, of um, course. Feel free. The, today is actually their Mother's Day's breakfast. Um, yes. I've attended in the previous years, but not the last two years because there were COVID. So this is the first year after like the pandemic that they mm-hmm, can actually mm-hmm. have um, mothers going into the school to go uh, for breakfast. And mm. I'm assuming a lot of schools out there in Australia and I don't know, maybe in other Western yeah, countries. Yeah, today, everywhere across Australia, yeah, primary schools. Mother's Day's <laughs> breakfast. 
Um, the reason this is probably going to be another controversial opinion from me. Um, the reason I don't want to go is I know there are a lot of kids that doesn't don't have mums, and there are a lot of uh, complicated relationship with child and parents, and、mm. perhaps the children don't want their mums to attend this kind of Mother's Days event. And on、yeah. the other hand. I do feel like it's almost like a public display of affections. And yeah, how yeah. do you feel as a child that if your mother are working on the day at the time、yeah. that cannot、yeah. attend, you know,、yeah. you, you feel sorry. You feel? you feel sorry for those kids, but at the same time, you never know the situation within、yeah. individual relationship between parents and child. So. I told my daughter that you know I don't. It's not because I don't love you. It's because I found this kind of events very tokenistic. Yeah,、mm. yeah. And she understands that, and that's why we had our own little <laughs> Mother's Day celebration on Wednesday, which was the teacher strike. School、day. strike. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So that was very lovely for me. I think. Oh, that's yeah. good. Yeah, I like that idea of you taking the rein in deciding how you were going to celebrate your yeah, own yeah. experience with motherhood、mm-hmm. in your own terms. I like. I really like that. I can see how you. I mean, it is very performative. But like, what else do schools do and community? I feel as though I don't know. I'm just seeing that. Year after year, anything, any event that genderite that involves some sort of highlighting of a gendered species,、mm-hmm. like you know, International Women's Day, Mother's Day, Father's Day, it's becoming less and less attractive.、Mm-hmm. Like people are no, people are seeing the the kind of problematic elements of it. Part of me is like, no, I I I love that, I love that. You know, I want to live in a world where we call parents parents and not mothers or fathers.、Mm-hmm. Like. Who cares about gender, kind of thing, you know?、Yeah. Um, but then part of me is also like, oh, I do like the flowers and the and the chocolate and the and the ridiculous pink、um, pink catalogs. <laughs> <laughs> There is a sort of frivolity to,、yeah. to towards that that whole kind of spectacle,、uh-huh. you know, Helen. That I kind of part of me is like, oh, this is fun, you know, just for the sake of fun.、Um, and I, I want to mention as a le- as a kind of、um, segue, the Met Gala. <laughs> um, in, 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 and I just want to frame it, and, and I will just spend a good minute talking about what I've been feeling emotionally. So this week, um, there has been a leaked document from the Supreme Court in the U.S. that has um basically insinuated or suggested um the road to for the future of America is that Roe v. Wade will be reversed,、mm-hmm. meaning um more than half. Uh, of the population in America,、um, if they want to get a ab- abortion now, in it seems as though the horrifying reality, a、yeah. horrifying reality is that you will be breaking the law.、Mm-hmm. Um, you know, Helen, when I heard this news,、um, I heard it in the context of a lot of different news.、Um, probably the most、um, popular this week has been the Met Gala. Mm-hmm. And you know Blake Lively's dress and Emma Chamberlain. I really, I mean, I personally love Emma Chamberlain. I think she's、um, ridiculously、um, overrated, but、um, there's something sort of silly about her that、um, you can't help but kind of endear yourself to, even though she really is not a human being. She's basically a brand. Um, we pretend that you know we like these people, but really they're just brands.、Mm-hmm. Um, they're not human beings.、Um, but I just found it so weird because I went from conversations with、uh, talking about the heaviness and the weight 
of um you know the, the abortion what is happening mm-hmm. with the um abortion rights and women's rights in the US right and the horrifying there's no harsher words i can use to describe the absolute um horrendousness of what is going on right? mm-hmm. really yes and then going and going from that to like talking about who was the best dressed at the I know. and and when you think about the it the, is the most absolutely ridiculous monumental piece of performative absurdity mm-hmm. right i mean just think about all the money put it i um actually love watching those videos i don't know if you've seen aunt helen on youtube those videos of like emma chamberlain getting ready they're all on vogue or like um phoebe denua like getting ready get ready with me before the men oh my you know, god um, and and they're so like and and like the other one i really like is Haley bieber she documents her kind of getting ready um for the met or the oscars often they just easily get more than two million views you know Mm. um but the thing that i find so absolutely insane about these things helen is that you see these in the in these videos you see just the sheer amount of human power behind each person like there was like 25 people groveling around um, Hayley Bieber as she got ready and putting her home makeup. Mm-hmm. There was like almost one person just to focus on one single part of her. So there was like a shoe person who just focused on helping her with her shoes. There was like, like five, literally five people around her just to get her... Like, she had a sort of white shawl, mm-hmm. like a furry shawl around her. Five people just helping her get her shawl around her properly. There was, like, one person just dabbing on makeup oh you know, um, for her at every single five, every five-minute in- increment. And then I, I watched the Emma Chamberlain one where she had about $2 billion worth of jewellery, like Cartier jewellery just laid out in front of her. Mm-hmm. And I was just thinking all of this, and then I was thinking about... And also because this year's theme was Gilded Age. Mm-hmm. I don't know if you've, like... Yeah, I heard it, but I haven't read it. Into and it, yeah, yeah, and they were talking about like how it's about excessiveness and um, oh uh, sort of God. like wealth and mm-hmm. um, you know all, all of what the Gilded Age represents. Mm-hmm. You know, um, jewelry. Um, just think of and An- Marie Antoinette, mm-hmm. really. You know, and then I was thinking about all that, and then thinking about what's happening in the U.S. and um, with women's rights, and I was just like, this doesn't compute. I'm literally in this state of like moral moral kind of absolute conundrum or like mm-hmm. my head is exploding yes. because i don't know how to feel about one thing or another anymore yeah yeah go go ahead what do you think i think i can just like i feel sick to my stomach just listening to you talking about it i mean i, I never really follow the met gala and i see a lot of media coverage about it and this year when i heard about it's a guild age i'm like what the fuck? I'm, I was like you. I'm like, I cannot understand what is going on with this group of celebrities that is trying yeah. to uphold their own brands and people are like mm. sheep following them oh, for yeah. the sake yeah. of being popular. You know, a couple yeah. of weeks ago when we were talking to Kanako, there's a really distorted ideas about being popular and famous in our generation. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, yeah. And having met Gala and you're seeing that this group, this group of people that is just trying to excessively display their own wealth and their own popularity, it's almost like we're wor- worshipping someone. The whole world mm, is yeah. ho- worshipping someone to the point yeah. that you know you can tell that there's a humongous power disparity amongst those yeah. people and the people who are serving them, serving mm. them. We're talking about all the crisis that's happening, the, the war. Yeah, in, in the Ukraine, in Ukraine, Ukraine, exactly. And the wealth disparity, fucking Elon Musk buying Twitter 
and yeah. and then now is the you know it was seen very likely that the banning of abor- or banning of abortion is coming to a, you know yeah. US yeah. very very yeah. soon. But then this group of people is like living in their own world. It's almost like a know, parallel exactly. universe. Is that that's how I feel, Helen? That's like, what what's I going feel on? Really you know, why am I, I watching this and I'm watching yeah, this? Like I know. no one, it, it, they're not related at all. But at the same yeah, time, exactly. you know that they're related because unless people are in oppressed situation, those people in power can never yeah. reach that kind of position. Yeah, exactly. I love what you said. I love yeah. what you said. And it kind of reminds me of the sickening disparity. Like remember mm. at the Grammys a few weeks ago, there was a video. There was a video from Zelensky, uh, the Ukrainian president. Yes. You know, and, yeah. and, and then the, I think, I, I believe at the Oscars, they had this like, they talk about the second, war as well. Yeah. yeah, the 10 second, like, they just plastered on something on the big screen saying, mm-hmm. um, let's take te- 10 seconds to think about those people suffering in the war. <laughs> and then, like, back to, back to joking about, like, who did this, you know, film full of $5 billion and yeah, it's just like... And then me, Will Smith slapped Chris Rock. Yeah, it's just... <laughs> I, it's a joke. I don't really know. It's not that I don't know how to live anymore, Helen. It's mm. not. It's that I don't know how to feel anymore. I don't know how to feel. Mm-hmm. I don't know how to love the frivolity of the Met, right? Because I do really like seeing who wears what. I like. I like seeing the costumes. Mm-hmm. I'm interested um, in the, the I, I suppose, the performance of fashion, right? Mm. Um, but I also hate the disgusting performativeness of the Met and its kind of unapologetic, abrasive nature of... I mean, it's all, like you said, Helen, it's all money. Mm -hmm. It's all, like, the Met raises money. Um, It's a big... uh, And like I said before, it's just a really big event for... It's it's just a a big PR event for me. That's what it is. Mm -hmm. I I think I'd like to think of it as an artistic, cultural, institutional event, you know? Mm. Um, But at the end of the day, um, it's humans being brands you know like mm-hmm. like who cartier getting uh, enough really f- big famous names to wear their jewelry and so mm-hmm. that their company can make enough revenue for the following 12 months yeah you know? they'll attract more followers they'll attract more buyers it's yeah, all exactly. about it's money. It's all a money thing. It's all a money thing. And let's not pretend it's uh-huh. not. You know, mm-hmm. I, I, like I said before, you know, I, I like the um, uh, fashion of it. But, like, at the end of the day, it's all just about money. Mm-hmm. Yeah, absolutely. I think even with last year, the reason we talked about Met Gala last year was because uh, AACO wore a dress oh, yeah, yeah. splatter with... The tax the rich, tax or something? The rich yeah. yeah, yeah, and then this year you have this kind of thing, it's almost very extremely hypocritical, you know. Yeah, and when you see people with power standing with all this juries oh, around them, I know they have I the just... power to talk about something that is a real concern for the whole world, or even yeah. just locally about the abortion. None of them talk about it. None of them took no, the platform you to talk about it because it must be, like, uncomfortable. That's why ACO last year was so attacked because they're saying that, oh, don't bring this kind of political agendas into yeah, the yeah. events like this because it makes everyone uncomfortable. Yeah, I agree with that, Helen. But also, um, I know myself personally, if I was getting paid $1.5 million... Just to wear, um, say, like two pieces of jewelry by Cartier, and I sign the contract, and they say wear it and don't make any political, political agenda statement. <laughs> yeah, that night. Of course, I'm gonna do it. 
Mm. You know, that's a lot of money. You know, these celebrities are bound by contracts and these contracts are, are built on like just like contractual, legal, capitalistic uh, sort of agendas, you know. So mm-hmm. they wouldn't, like I would not worship any celebrity who um, makes his or her or their money through Hollywood because they are always bound by the terms of Hollywood and it, mm-hmm. and Hollywood is all about money. Yeah. You know? Um, and like you know, we we kid ourselves thinking, oh yeah, um, uh, you know George Clooney, uh, Leonardo DiCaprio, Sean Penn, these people who seemingly Angelina Jolie seemingly are uh, like quote unquote ambassadors mm. to humanitarian aid. Uh, you know, like George Clooney, it was something really in um, Darfur, <laughs> um, oh, Africa. Sean Penn with the latest crisis in Ukraine. Um, Leonardo DiCaprio, his work with climate change. You know, Angelina Jolie with I don't know World Vision or something. Um, I don't kid myself different about, kids. Yeah, exactly. I don't kid myself about these people, you know, like and to be fair, like I know that people like Blake Lively and all those people I've mentioned, they're human beings, I get it, just like you and me. But I'm not gonna pretend that they're anything like um you and me in the sense that I don't relate to them on any scale whatsoever, mm. you know. Um, at the end of the day, like I said, with Emma Chamberlain, they're brands. Mm-hmm. You know, they're brands. Yeah. And and companies know that they can bank on these faces because somehow people just love beautiful people who pretend to be other beautiful people. You know, at the end of the day, um, actors are um, people who pretend to be other people and we, we love them, mm-hmm. you know. Um, they're so bankable. It's like almost like a concept of what you're seeing makes you how, make, how, how does it make you feel mm. and I guess it's the reality of, our current society is so distorted now that whatever that we see, beautiful people, you'll make us feel happy, you know, and people yeah, yeah, kind yeah. of misunderstand or confuse with happiness and pleasure. That's what I used to say. That yeah. um, maybe money do pl- bring you happiness, but are you? Is it the real happiness that you're getting, or is it just a pure pleasure, or you know, you're getting out of it? Uh, there's a big discussion behind Divide. that yeah, oh, yeah we're happiness. not really going to go I, yeah, into we won't detail. dive into it but I'd like to talk to you about it further Helen because I don't think I've asked that question of myself mm-hmm. a lot I think I know the difference um mm. like um you know um for me uh, skittles is pleasurable you know ple- a pleasure I associate more with sensory things like bodily okay. things yeah. physical things and happiness is like mental it's like you know emotional Mm-hmm. But I think there's a there's a misunderstanding of the, hap- the the happiness that you get from really feeling content or feeling the need to show the world. Do you know mm-hmm. what I'm saying? Mm-hmm. Like I'm just gonna use Mother's Day as an example again. Unfortunately, even though I can't just I can't come up with anything else, but social media makes that makes people feel like if you display publicly about what you're achieving or how mm. you're feeling mm. um, and also maybe, you know, display public affection. And when you're getting a lot of likes, you're getting a lot of followers, that could become a return of investment of satisfaction. Mm. But at the same time, are you really getting, you know, the true satisfaction because you're getting likes from strangers or friends who are never close to you who doesn't need to take an effort to just press that like and you get an instant gratification from it. Whereas 
a closer relationship will take a lot more efforts to build. You know, because we see a lot of families and couples. You know, they they're happy on Instagram or Facebook, but are they are they really like that in the real life? You know,、yeah. we've seen、uh, very kind of like a sarcastic sketch comedy about how influencers, for the sake of posting their beautiful photos, that they get their partners to take pictures of them, but in reality, that their real relationship un doesn't look. As nice, mm, mm. you know, and also the family relationships as well. So I guess people are starting to kind of distort that kind of feeling. Oh, maybe if I can have my satisfaction through social media, I don't need so much in my real private life.、Mm, um, mm. I'm using the example of Mother's Day is because days like this, you know, you you see a lot of selfies with your kids and your. You see a lot of like, mothers. I'm not mother daughter. Yeah, yeah, I'm not. I don't want to be. I don't want to, you know, shit on those people. But the reality is, what does mothers really want? Do they really just want breakfast in bed, and then the rest of the day the kids still argues, the husband still doesn't do anything, or do they really really want the real change in the world? Because the public affection is seem. A lot throughout days of celebrations like this, and it, to me, like I said, it's very performative because you want other people to see you rather than what、mm. you really do. Like comes out from yourself. That's、yeah. why I don't want to do any. I don't really want to do celebrations on that day. You know, I prefer we had the chance of this week during you know, on Wednesday that we、yeah. had teacher strike that. I can spend the time with my the time with my daughter, taking her to the beach, and she said that oh, it's nice. Who you don't, we don't really have to pretend and show anyone. We don't、mm. have the obligation to show anyone that oh yeah, we're we're perfect. Our mother、yeah. daughter relationship, we don't have any arguments. I mean, we still argue and things like that. It's I'm going on and on. <laughs> no, no, no. I love what everything you said. I I have um. My frame of mind is、um, so I, I I totally get what you're saying. I personally、um, am not in that world because I'm so、mm. actively opposed to social media and I hate it. Like、mm-hmm. I've said so many times, I'm allergic to it. Yeah. Um. And and the thing that the sort of like saying or the way of thinking about all this that I continue to follow is that I heard many years ago someone saying that、um, people who post stuff online are、uh, just want to make someone jealous. Or whatever it is, a picture, or like if you want a virtue signal, or whatever, right?、Mm. And I、um, realized, yeah,、um, I have nothing to sh- make someone envious out out there.、Uh, I have absolutely zero motivation to show anyone outside of the people I love. So,、um, you know, if I want to send pictures of me and my partner, I'll just send it to the、um, family group chat.、Mm-hmm. That's 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 the only people I care about. So that's the only people I'm going to broadcast my pictures to. You know, so any kind of public image that you put. On online is to make someone jealous or to perform some kind of virtue, and I don't have any. I don't have either of those agendas,、mm. and so that's why I'm not on social.、Um, and I guess、um, for that to change, for me to start posting stuff would would only happen if someone counters those two reasons for me. You know, like I was just thinking the other day, I was looking at Gio Tolentino.、Um, Um, she had posted stuff on like her pictures of her and her friends and her、um, 
ridiculously good-looking husband now. She got married, <laughs> even though she wrote like a whole essay about not wanting to get married. Uh, she posted pictures of them at a rally for abortion. Okay. And also like on her Instagram, she posted like the link to um, donate to abortion clinics around mm-hmm. the US, you know? Yep. And I started to think, well, I have a tiny, tiny platform. Like I have like just over a thousand followers on Instagram. Because we never really put efforts into (laughs) Yeah, and I was thinking, well, I really feel, I really believe in abortion rights. Mm. And so I thought, oh, I should put a link Mm -hmm. to my um, Instagram. But then I was like, if I do that, then what about like child marriage? Like I'm just passionate about child marriage. And then if I don't post about child marriage, does that mean that I, like, will I be somehow signaling, signaling to all those strangers out there in the in the universe yeah. that I value abortion over like I think abortion is more of a crime abortion. than child marriage yeah. no I don't so I was like so I went over and over thinking and so that, that really just like I was like okay just you know I have not nothing I like I'm gonna privately myself donate to um, yeah. abortion clinics in the US I know that's something I can do here in Australia mm-hmm. but but I don't feel like I have any kind of um, I just I feel really weird about any kind of social media presence because i feel like it's just going to be somehow someone out there is going to be twisting it in a way that i didn't intend Mm -hmm. you know but that's a bit (sighs) contradictive of what you said because you just said that you don't really care and then it's i don't really care about what socials oh you mean like as in i don't want people to misinterpret my intentions yeah i mean that's what i mean so Uh i just It's all very complicated. It's, yeah, with social know, media. Yeah. And and I yeah, and we've we've gone on a almost half the episode now has been about this strange issues. But um before we uh, take a break, I want to just wrap up my week with a few things. Okay. Um so um just to lighten the conversation, we I just want to mention really quickly uh, two movies that I watched this week that I want to give a shout out to. Um on Netflix there is a film called The Week of um, starring uh, Adam Sandler and Rachel Dratch. Uh, Rachel Dratch is like one of my favorite actors ever. She's um, in so many uh, sitcoms and movies. Um, probably my favorite role she plays is as Linda in Broad City. <laughs> okay. She's she's the woman Helen. I don't know if you remember in the Amy Schumer sketch. She's also in Amy Schumer's Inside Amy Schumer, where like um, Amy Schumer and a bunch of white women are in a, a pet pet store or like oh, yeah, a pet I remember kind that. of babysitting yeah trying to compete with each other how much more they <laughs> yeah. love their dog yeah exactly and then uh, Linda, uh, and then Rachel Dredge's uh, character is like um talking about how she picked up her adopted she adopted her <laughs> dog her show like her abandoned dog from like mm. the uh, during the hurricane Katrina she was like talking about <laughs> like a black a black boy like uh-huh. standing this is not funny obviously the, the situation in the hurricane she was like the black boy standing on the roof and then the dog and she was like uh, oh I saved the dog and then um, um, Amy Schumer's yeah like how, what what happened to the boy everyone asks, what happened to the boy and she's like what, what boy, boy? <laughs> It's making fun out of, you know, know. how those white people... White women just do not give a shit about black people, but they give a shit about dogs, you know? Yeah. 
Um, and and I want to preface the fact that I mean I want to say obviously that it's not funny for the politics of black um, and racism, Black Lives Matter in Australia uh, in America is not funny. It's the fact that the what's funny is the fact that that sketch so perfectly, in, yeah, so perfectly captures the absolute um, sense of white women, or white people not caring about black lives, mm-hmm. you know, but instead caring about dogs. Mm. <sighs> Yeah, and anyway, um, so uh, the week of is basically very loosely. It's, it's the the, the storyline is basically the father of the bride, okay, um, Steve Martin. Yeah, um, except instead of Diane Keaton, we have Rachel Redretch. Instead of Steve Martin, we have um, Adam Sandler, okay. and it's a really big cast. It's like, and also, um, the groom, the um, the daughter's husband to be is black, and so it kind of touches on black racism and it oh, touches on interracial coupledom, uh-huh. but it's really an ensemble kind of um movie uh, about the coming together of two families mm. in the week leading to these two young people getting married. getting married. I found that surprising that Rotten Tomato it was twenty six percent, but I actually really really fucking loved this film mm-hmm. like I, I i absolutely was so on board with it i i, I laughed i i cried it uh-huh. was it was so tender like some some parts of father of the bride like and we watched it last night some parts of it was a kind of like a there was definitely the sense of sanctimonious patriarchy mm-hmm. you know with like, far, yeah, of like um, with steve martin you know losing her losing his daughter like it's really fucking fragile fatherhood you know mm-hmm. um and there was tiny elements of that to the week of with Adam Sandler playing the paternal figure, but it, it just wasn't as sanctimonious. Like I found um, the week of um, and Adam Sandler's role really tender and really beautiful and mm-hmm. really kind of like sympathetic. I, I really sympathised with Adam Sandler's character, kind of realizing that his daughter is no longer, you know, going to be in his life in the way that she has in the last 23 years and similar to the father of bride um she the daughter andy she's like 22 when she gets married and in adam sandler's movie it's um the daughter's 23 it's like mm-hmm. these women are so young and I, I would really recommend you and um you watch it helen um, if you have time the week okay. of on netflix it's really really good i wonder why is it so low is it because it explores the race nuance around it and people don't want it I have Watch no it. idea. Yeah. I have no idea why it's... I thought it was excellent. I freaking loved that film. I'm so glad I watched it because I usually don't watch movies I've never heard of and mm-hmm. I had never heard of this. It's from 2018. It's, it's really, really funny. I just... I, I loved it so much. I think you can look up... I think Adam Sandler has been moving on towards a different type of character that he plays compared to the ones that we watch him when we were growing Happy up. Gilmore. Yeah. Which I freaking used- hate. Happy Madison. Oh my god, I freaking hate those movies. He used to play stupid, dumb, white yeah, he's such a male character. Boy, yeah. yeah, but I think because, I, I don't know, maybe because he's aging and he realised he needs to find some characters to play that's more meaningful. Yeah, and not like a 14 year old boy. How about you, Helen? This week, we are still going through the Korean drama. I'm obsessed with Korean zombie drama. <laughs> <laughs> so love it. Um, love it. Our listeners might have know that I talked a lot about different types of Korean dramas in the past, mm-hmm. but this one I've recently picked up. It's called Happiness. Mm-hmm. The first three episodes were extremely slow, almost to the point that I didn't think that I would continue because 
zombie genre drama is slightly different to the ones that we previously watched. I don't think it's a, it's rather, I'm guessing it's a low budget production because、mm-hmm. compared to the previous zombie movies or the dramas that I've watched, there are a lot of zombies and you have to put、mm-hmm. a lot of makeup for a lot of people. And it's right, right, almost,、yeah. you have to have the volume. You know, within、mm-hmm. zombie、um, productions, you have to have the volumes of the zombies to look to the point that is extremely scary and yeah, yeah. to the point that is. Attractive enough to, for the viewers, but this one is more almost like a semi thriller, and you explore through human the human the darkness of humanity because, in the end, humans are the ones who are worse than zombies. Yeah, yeah. So, the story is taking place in this young couple who kind of fake their way. Not really fake, but they pretend they're newly married so they can get extra social points. I don't know, I don't know,、mm-hmm. this in South Korea, that they can get social extra points to rent a very nice apartment in a better suburb.、Mm-hmm. Yeah, and within 10 years' time, they can purchase the whole apartment in a very、uh, cheaper price.、Mm-hmm. Anyway, so both of them are in the police force and they found out that there's a kind of drug that people take. That wasn't approved yet publicly.、Mm-hmm. Um, when people take it, they will become like a, there's a, a neural、uh, malfunction that will turn people into zombies, which、oh、in, in the drama they call it mad human disease. <laughs> But compared to the previous zombies dramas that we've seen, is that once you turn、um, zombies, you cannot, you remain that in that status. Right, right.、Yeah. Yeah. But with this one, is that Uh, people t- come s back as a human、mm. within a certain period of time so people can control if the virus has not taken over your brain that you'll come、mm. back as a human if you have the will to sustain that kind of status. Yeah, yeah. The drama is quite interesting towards the middle because the, the whole suburb going to lockdown, there's a the whole apartment complex goes into lockdown. And you see how all the residents are starting to attack each other. They're trying to fight for resources. It's almost like a Law of the Flies situation. Mm, mm-hmm, yeah. Mm-hmm. And oh my God, it's just unbelievable. There are some characters, you just watch them and you're like, oh my God, fucking hell. You just want, want them to die. <laughs> no, yeah. Yeah. It's just the darkness of humanity when it comes to、uh, selfishness. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. And trying to take advantage of other people. Yeah. Mm-hmm, in, mm-hmm. in the time of crisis, it just shows the reality, just shows. Yeah, interesting. Let's, let's jump into our break. And then when we return, we're going to go right straight to our、um, discussion this week. A lot to unpack.、Mm-hmm. Not a lot of time left, but、uh, let's get into it. We'll be right back. And we're back. So last week, Helen, you and I talked about the practical administrative、yep. logistics involved in adopting, from, adopting a child from Taiwan、um, if you are a New South Wales resident here, here in Australia. And、uh, Helen, this week, you're going、mm-hmm. to chat about some of the stories that are out there 
um, about um, personal experiences from adoptees. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So last week we spoke about the bit more logistic parts of adoption, and this week I want to explore the conversations around the identity of adoptees and their stories. Uh, first of all, I want to start with that. I don't know if anyone out there knows uh, mm-hmm. adoptions can be two. There are two different types. One is open and the other one is closed adoption. Most of the time, the stories that we heard are mostly closed adoptions where that the child or the baby is uh, disconnected from their birth parents mm. and often that new birth certificates without any mention of their own original family are issued and their new birth certificate are legalised in Australia for Australian adoptive parents as the ch- uh, the child's only parents. So the stories we are discussing today are the lived experience of the adoptees that uh, I have researched online and the adoptees are mostly adults now. And as we speak today, that their stories are very important, mm-hmm. I think, no matter if nowadays that we are seeing more improved process or engagement in transracial adoptions. The stories of these adoptees are very, still very relevant in order for us as a society mm-hmm. to navigate, to understand what they have gone through and mm-hmm. also how they felt and what possibly can be done in the future to avoid and minimise you know, the repeated history. Um, a couple of stories that I will probably come back during our discussions First one will be Nicole Chen's uh, story. If you ha- if you don't know, you can go and look up her book. Or you can ever know she's a American Korean adoptee that lives in US. She's mm-hmm. a writer, journalist now. Um, the second one is Found. This is one of my other cultural consumption this week. Um, I encourage everyone to watch it. I cried the first thirty seconds. It's a documentary. Oh my gosh, and that would be me. Found is that a documentary on. Can I just Netflix. say, Helen? Yeah, you um, go, you go. So I cried in the first thirty seconds when he started. <laughs> so, because mm, yeah, because it started yeah. with yeah. Um, a narrative from the nannies of those uh, girls who were given up as uh, for adoption in China. And you just hear that the nanny speaking in Cantonese and that, oh, yeah, I look after these girls and I wonder what they're doing okay, now. Yeah. Okay, I'm going to take over so Helen doesn't yeah. start stopping again. I love you, <laughs> Hel. Um, so um, I I love, yeah, I don't think I could do this just because I've had such a, a fucking intense emotional week. Sorry for using the F <laughs> yeah. word. I, I'm trying to let, use the F word less. Just I find it so abrasive. Um, I want to use it just privately to myself but in front of no one else. Um, so I'm not shaming anyone who uses it. Um, uh, what I was going to say was um, I I love the podcast you sent me from the LA Times with Nicole Chung talking about her adoption oh, yeah. process. And I was uh-huh. thinking, Helen, because I listened to her, I mean, sorry, right before we started recording. And I found mm-hmm. it really, really, like, it really was painful. And she was so, like, her story is so sympathetic, Helen, because I have never actually thought to myself, I've never actually sat down and thought, what would it be like to be born knowing that you're, biological parents for whatever reason the reasons you don't really for a lot of women like nicole never knew until she went to discover try and find Mm -hmm. them but like i would be a complete mess just knowing myself 
I would just have probably not have had a very healthy... Just I I know how low my self-esteem has been for most of my adult life. I can't imagine what it's like to feel as though you weren't loved enough. so hard. That is so effed up. I cannot imagine how traumatic that is um, to start a life like that. And I think my first experience, Helen, with um, meeting an adoptee was when I was 19, I was at this... um, uh, I was at this camp situation in Tasmania um, for mm. awkward people mm-hmm. who wanted to pursue a career in classical music. And what, the violinist who sat next to me in this orchestra, she was from Adelaide and she was Korean, but she was an adoptee. Okay. And she had, mm-hmm. I think the, the camp was only two weeks. So, and I shared a, no, I believe I shared a, a apartment with her and I sensed in her mm-hmm. some unprocessed mental chaos Emotions. Emotions. Yeah, yeah. I, okay. I sensed it. Uh-huh. She was very good at hiding oh, it. How? Because she was very bubbly. I even oh. remember her name. Her name was Diane. Uh-huh. She was so bubbly, and and she told me like, and and you know, when I was nineteen, I didn't know jack shit about the world, so I wasn't, I didn't interrogate her about her past. And for me, it was just like, oh, whatever. Who cares? You're 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 adopted. Like no big deal. Like, even though she was my, I guess mm-hmm. my first time I met someone who was adopted, I, for me, I didn't treat it, like, different. But in hindsight, I wish I had asked her more questions. Um, I think I do remember mm-hmm. her telling me that she oh, has always felt left out um, and that she was the Aww. only Asian kid in her school. Like, I mean, she she freaking grew up Aww. in Adelaide. She was from Adelaide. Like, that is the widest city in Australia, <sighs> you know? Yes. Uh-huh. Um, yeah. But, yeah, keep going. What what else have you – what other materials um, have you read about? Adoptees? So there's another – there's a, a couple articles on ABC for anyone who – we'll put it into mm-hmm. our show mm-hmm. note as well. I read up – there's uh, – sorry, there's a Malaysian a Malaysian Asian who is Australian, of course. His name's Caleb and he's he has, uh, he has mm-hmm. autism as well. So you have to imagine how much – difficulties for him to grow up in a very a rural Queensland oh, yeah. town. Oh, Queensland. Oh, my gosh. How, how much difficulties that he will go through during his childhood. There, there is another podcast that I was listening to when I was looking up transracial intercountry adoption. This podcast is called Bittersweet Podcast. I think everyone should go and follow it as well. It's mm-hmm. so cute. There are Ethiopian adoptees. They came to Australia and adopted by white parents. And they, there's an episode about them and their friends talking about their mm-hmm. adoption journey they were actually adopted after two some of them were adopted mm-hmm. at the age of six so they can remember everything from you know yeah. breaking away from their original family so you can imagine the painful journey that they have went through and also feeling how mm-hmm. disconnected at the very beginning when they're adopted into their wife into the white family uh even though that they're in melbourne and they do go to uh, Ethiopian community suburbs in Melbourne. I think it's Footscray. Mm, mm. They sometimes they say that oh, they there's still something that they don't feel that they're connected to. Yeah. Um, because with their white family, there are a lot of things that their white parents do not understand, and even if they approach their white parents to talk about it, if they yeah yeah um, encounter racist <laughs> remarks, the the white parents just say yeah yeah oh just just ignore them you know it's yeah it's, yeah. <laughs> it's like they don't know how to deal with it because they never experienced racism you know as white parents. I think that there is the lack of discourse and discussion about transracial adoptions 
into very recently. It is mm. very ambiguous yeah. and sensitive topics, and I guess it's because people refuse to talk about the reasons for adoption. You know how the society expectation of having your kids, or maybe you have the inability to reproduce your own child for whatever reason, and. I think more than ever now,、yeah. it really opens the dialogue surrounding transracial adoptions as these children are becoming、uh, adults and they have the right to voice their experience. You know, there are a lot of studies surrounding、mm. transracial,、mm. transnational, or intercountry adoptions as the quiet or unknown migrations. There's a study online about the Korean Australian adoptees. And I want to point out that there is a possibility that we don't, yeah, if we don't open the conversations,、uh, especially for transracial adoptions, they are likely to be forgotten. As the this is what I thought about it when I was、uh, preparing for this, is because the technology technology improvements with IVA、uh, contraception and、mm-hmm. legalized abortions in some areas that the rate of adoptions has indeed dropped in the past years, yeah. Mm-hmm. And apart、mm-hmm. from the stories,、uh, during our conversations today, I have some PhD PhD papers that I've briefly gone through this week. One is by Korean adoptee Hirei Hazer.、Um, the paper, their paper, is called "Korean Australian Adoptee Diasporas: A Glimpse into Social Media." And the other one is "I Am the Center Part of Venn Diagram: Belonging and Identity、mm-hmm. for Taiwanese Australia Intercountry." Adoptees、uh, okay. by a group of、uh, ac- academics in University of New South. In, sorry, in the New- University of Sydney.、Um, I know just how much you hate academic paper, but I think oh, it's just dull. Yeah, but, but I think I、like、these two papers yeah, are easy to yeah, it's quite easy to read. And firstly, I want to pinpoint that I will most. Likely to refer to more of the examples of Korean adoptee diasporas, as they are the largest cohort of intercountry adoptees in Australia since 1969. Yeah, and as those adoptees and possibly will be, I think they are probably the largest cohort in US as well.、Mm, mm-hmm. Yeah. yeah, and we're seeing the rising number of those adoptees becoming scholars to both. To share their experiences and also explore the complexity about the transracial adoptions.、Mm-hmm. Therefore, I started to read the Hayes's paper first, and realized I won't be able to go through the two hundred and sixty pages within two days. <laughs>、oh、so I、gosh. just kind of、uh, browse through the introductions and the summaries of each chapter. Yeah. So if you do have time, like I'll have this on our show note as well,、mm-hmm. and、Great. it's rather rather fascinating to explore from a lot of angles on identity specifically, and also、mm-hmm. how important that the social media for the connections of the adoptees group.、Mm-hmm. Yeah. So I found that in Hayes's paper, it began with this: Korean Australian adoptions represent the largest number of children adopted into Australia since the nineteen sixties. However, despite the Korean Australian adoption program being the largest and the longest-standing intercountry adoption program in Australia, little is known about Korean Australian adoptees. It is estimated that there are over two thousand four hundred adult Korean Australian adoptees. Wow! And the earliest statistics indicate three thousand five hundred Korean Australian adoptions.、Wow. Um, 
there's a lot of thing to there's a lot of thing that Hazer talked about in the paper. First of all, will be the colonial mentality in transracial adoptions.、Um, yeah, yeah, totally. Like white savior mentality. Yeah, you, know, you have、uh, adoptive parents saying that, or maybe even even if it's not adoptive parents, you get strangers. Yeah, white people or the fam other family members saying that oh you should be grateful that you have adopted into Western country. Yeah, yeah. It's almost as if it's highlighting the society perception that the birthplace of the child is inferior. Oh yeah, totally, yeah. absolutely. And the Western I mean, society is superior. Yeah, I、ahead. mean, can I just say that is just literally the mentality of the entire world that、mm. all Western countries are superior. Uh, Ugh, it's, it's really. It, it's quite. I can't find a word. It's really troubling. I think it's almost saying、mm. that、um, this quote is. I'm taking out from that tiny Australian paper.、Uh, there's a、mm-hmm. quote saying that the child is better with me than in the rice paddy field in Taiwan.、Oh, gosh, I mean, I hate that、mm. comment, but I also see why they made it. I'm not sympathising with that comment,、mm. but but I also. <sighs> I feel very conflicted because, like,、um, it's it's like that same problem,、um, the issue that Celeste Ng presents in Little Fires Everywhere. You know, like, yes,、um, you、um, because you know,、um, money does like. I find it hard to talk about because I've never talked about this, but like, material wealth, you know, money can give the kid more、mm-hmm. opportunities. Yeah, you know, like that's that's just like that's, that's a fact. A fact.、Yeah. But 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 like what about、um, emotionally? What about the connection? Yeah, exactly, and also、identity? like connection,、yeah. you know, all that. Yeah, exactly. So like,、um, I don't want to fool myself by thinking, yeah,、um, a kid who is like living in the squalors in a slum in India is still gonna is gonna have a better life than you know a, a white family who you know adopts him in you know and they live in Vaucluse or the、mm-hmm. eastern suburbs. You know, like I'm not gonna kid myself about that. Um, but. But、uh, how do you how do you comprehend you know one and the、mm. other like it, how do you make sure that the kid does have a life a spiritual life that's connected and that their ancestral background is acknowledged、mm-hmm. and kind of revered and you know that that the kid has a sustained reverence and、um, openness and continuingly kind of drawing their own. Um, sense of identity, sense of yeah,、mm. sense of self from that background with 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 like when they're surrounded by、yes. white people, like how、yeah. does that happen? It would be extremely difficult because everything that no, I read、yeah. was all very. I don't want to use the word negative, and I don't think that any of the adoptees out there, the transracial adoptees, they're not un- they're not ungrateful. It's because that yeah, yeah. the commonalities of the transracial adoptees is. Almost, they have the same things that gone through their childhood, even up to their adulthood. The sense of disconnect with anywhere, the lack of racial、mm. discussion with、uh, their white parents, and the- navigating through life without fully understanding their own identity. They also feel that there is lack of acceptance, belonging with either side, with white. Community,、yeah, exactly. or even let's talk about Asians. You know, they they feel like they're their own. Yeah, they、exactly. look Asian, but they don't know anything about Asian. They don't know the language, yeah, exactly. The culture. They've been pretty much broke away since birth or whatever age that they were given up for adoption. 
there's yeah. um, very little to establish that connection. What they look like, yeah, yeah, exactly. And that's the problem with a lot of yeah. white parents because those adoptive parents would think, "Oh, we don't see race." You know, we we take you in, and yeah. we'll just yeah, of course uh, raise you as one of our own. And there's nothing wrong with that. Yeah. But they fail to see no, no. that the bigger picture of the whole society, the environments that this child will go out exactly. in school and in the bigger society, the in the community. Yeah, exactly. That they're still, it's undeniably that they have an Asian appearance. Yeah, I know. Again, they can't hide that. Exactly. That's the physiognomy of uh-huh. their face. That's not something I can mm. hide. I know. Exactly. I love that. I love what yeah. you said. Um, and I remember I listened to a podcast episode with um, a, a, one of the adoptee, one of the hosts of mm-hmm. Plan A. Yeah, yeah. I forget yeah, his name. A, but adoptee, he was talking yeah. about. Yeah, and there was one of them where he talks about his experience, mm. right? And he and his wife, who's Korean, she's not adoptee. She's um, she's an immigrant. She's a yeah. Korean. She's a yeah American, um, but she's not adoptee. They were having trouble conceiving, and so they thought about mm-hmm. adopting. And he and her went through years and years of talking about it. And he just kept saying, thought about it for years, and realized that at the end, he just said, "No, nah, I can't adopt." A kid because I knew I knew what I went mm. through, and it is so unbearable and painful that I don't want to do that. Like he said, I don't want to be. Uh, like he was just like I. I have shit I need to resolve in my own. He need to process it as an himself first. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. That, that he knew that he had a limit and that he could not be the best father oh. to an adoptee because he went through that and he knew the mm. pain. When I heard that, I was just like, that is so amazing that he he knew mm. that about himself and he knew his limits and he, and it made me very sad. Like I was so, I was in such pain for him that, like, because you'd think, you would think, right, you would think just from the outside, anyone would think, oh, well, if you're an adoptee, you'd be the best parent because you, you would know what the child's mm-hmm. going through, right? Like on the surface, that makes sense. But, um, but actually it's the reverse. Like he was like, I can't. Mm. I, I can't be the person who champions for this kid when I know myself how fucking hard yeah. it was for me and that he was still traumatised by the whole experience as an adoptee. Yeah, I agree what you're saying. You know, there's something yeah. beautiful about that. I, I totally agree with him, but also that I would say that he would... I think he's more into the problem of the wider society rather than himself. I think he will probably make a good candidate as a adoptive parents because like you said other people say that he has went through um himself and he might have a better he may cut he might be able to come up with a better solution of how to deal with certain situations but he might choose not to and also a lot yeah. of things that you cannot yeah. change you cannot change that white neighbor who lives next to uh, next door to us who's always making racist remarks that you can't change that person mm, mm. and you can't change yeah. the playground encounters yeah, exactly. of other kids bullying you just because that you have an Asian <sighs> face. So I understand yeah. that he's not going down that path. Yeah. Yeah. Is that your dog yes. next to you? Yes. <laughs> <laughs> Patty. Um, okay. Okay. So what I found was quite interesting was that there's also um, a question about setting policies when it comes to mm. having transracial adoption, um, because we know that the policies are set out by the adults, 
and also mm. were there actually adoptees that had any say about these policies? You don't have mm, any mm. adoptees involved in creating policies like this. And even though that we're always saying that, oh, what's the best interest of the child? And when it comes to yeah. transracial adoption, the people who decide the best interest are the people with power and I'm going to put an equal sign again who's got the power to decide the white people in the western country yeah of course oh, you know God. so there's no opportunity to, for, to voice their concern uh, for example that in the practice of transracial regulatory frameworks including the convention of rights of the children and the Hague adoption convention these policies were implemented without the voice of any adult in the country Adoptees. What we mentioned, mm, even God. Nicole Chon, she should be able to voice out certain regulations like this. I want to specifically mention that for female adoptees, there is a, a very rather complicated situation uh, about that how the narratives uh, could be sexualized surrounding the situation of their mothers were they when they were given up for adoption I think it, it, it happens with uh, male adoptees as well I think but then more female adoptees come, um, kind of came out and talk about a situation like this because I don't know how to explain this but daughters usually will feel more connected with their mother in the sense that because you have the same body this is mm. i don't know how, i honestly don't know how to explain it but i was reading through that there is the prolonging conservative sexist narratives against women for example that one korean mother's story in i wish you had a beautiful life which poignantly speaks about the marginalization about how there are mothers in asia that they need to give up their children is because they are working in the sex worker industry or the society mm. kind of the perception about the unwedded woman giving birth mm. you know there's a taboo mm. about a lot of around it. Uh, there's a taboo surrounding in discussions like this just heaps of social injustice for the people for those women and you never know you never mm. understand the reason that they fall pregnant first yeah, of course. Could be yeah, rape. Exactly. Often. When I was watching Found, um, I know a lot of adoption stories centers around the adoptive adoptees and also the adoptive families, but you never mm-hmm. really look at the story of the woman who gave up their child. Yeah, yeah. that's what yeah, exactly. really, really made me extremely sad. Actually, is that, is that even a word? For women who have to give up their child. I don't know. Is there a word for that in society? I don't think so. We, we should look it up, should, yeah. I feel like we... Yeah. I feel like this. It's just... Yeah. Because that's a really good point. Like, uh, in the world, mm. we have a lot of space and uh, organisations for adoptees, yes. right? But I'm sure, I'm sure, I'm absolutely sure that there's something big uh, or small out there for women who've had to give up their children yeah. for whatever uh-huh. reason. Yeah, and let, let's let's like put this into perspective. Like, if if Roe v. Wade is overturned in the U.S., you um, will you know, have raped to their, an influx. Well, you, she has to carry yeah. the baby to term. <sighs> <sighs> um, another thing that I want to talk about is the Korean adoptee culture. 
which is also called KAD. It is like a kind of the empowerment for and hu- with humanizes, which humanizes uh, the adoptee's life experience and also establish their own culture and heritage to get beyond the shame and inferiority that they have been forced upon adoptees by adoptive parents from the start. Uh, for example, we're seeing a lot more connection through social media, community groups, uh, which is set up by Korean immigrants to make connections. And also, they can openly talk about experience that they had during their childhood. Sometimes they talk, they get into a group, you know, they talk about their experience, how perhaps that the white family attempts to assimilate them, you know, uh, the idea of their adoption is securing them a better life. And also there is a problem with removal and replacement of their names, languages and culture, and also the lack of respect of their cultures and birth family. Sometimes they experience through ridicules, racism and discrimination, and it just doesn't come solely from the white communities. Sometimes it will come from their Asian counterparts as well because they don't they never feel fully Asians themselves. That's why that a lot of adoptees report the discomfort with their Asian identity as they don't really fit into the stereotypical Caucasian Australian type. You know, for example, an Australian Chinese adoptee he highlighted the dominance of whiteness in Australia and the discomfort of being Asian in the context. He said that I don't hate the way I look, but I look, I don't look, I don't like looking Asian either. So during the 90s, being mm. a teenager and looking Asian and looking different in what was the predominant white Australia, yeah, I don't like that. I didn't. And the typical Australian is blonde hair, blue eye, and I just don't look like that. Even so, that I feel like mm-hmm. I know everything about Australia. And so the focus is that the whiteness is normalized. Yeah. And almost it's like a default appearance for the society. Any final thoughts? We do question that is it always white families adopting children transracially? Uh, the answer is according yeah. to in a study in US, it is. They're yes. usually older people. Yeah, exactly. They're usually yeah. men and women who sought medical help to have a baby. They're usually Christian. They're mostly mm. Caucasians. In US, a study shows that most adoptive parents are seventy-three, three percent non-Hispanic white adults. Yeah. So mm-hmm. compared to yeah. the people of color, they are still the majority of the family that adopts transracially. When we talk about uh, people of color adopts white children. Have you ever thought about that? Like black people or people no, I haven't. adopting white children? Yeah, it's quite interesting. It's usually, it, it's usually yeah. the white people who adopts uh, children of color, isn't yeah, it? Yeah, yeah, yeah. They have the power. They have the power, exactly. Yeah, and the access and the, yeah. yeah. It's all, yeah, and it's like you said, it's very expensive. Yes, yes. And it takes a lot of time and resources. And often black, white uh, sorry, black people of color families don't have that. Mm-hmm. That's why we don't have like it's it's about power. This conversation, a lot of it is about power. Yes, at the root. Mm-hmm. Like yes, it's about love. We get it. We 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 don't deny the fact that these are loving white people, 
but at the end of the day it's also like don't don't pretend it's not about power and access to power as well mm-hmm. thinking of that i went up to uh, research whether or not there are stories about black people or people of color that adopts white children uh, the thing is that they actually get dis- discriminations they actually get oh. racist remarks there are very very few black american families that adopted white children and mm. there was one there's a guy called peter because he was adopted as well so he wants to kind of like uh, give back to the society and mm. he, he's not mm. choosing to have children of his own and the discrimination that he gets was that he usually will be mistaken that he's kidnapping a white child. Oh, my yeah. God. And there's another That's... discrimination case against a British Indian couple for not allowing to adopt non-Asian child. They were compensated with £120,000 in damage after the jury ruled that they've been discriminated against by not being allowed to adopt a non-Asian origin child. It's almost like the society saying that, oh, you're Indian. You can only adopt Indian kids. Yeah, so they were compensated. That's disgusting. Yeah, so so, it needs a lot for everyone to think about it. Yeah. Oh yeah, definitely. Just a, and, and a discussion I'm around what, adoption. <laughs> yeah, I know. It's it's so it's so it, there's so many tentacles to this discussion, mm-hmm. isn't there? Yeah. And I'm really glad we started the conversation today and it continues. It continues. So that's the end of our episode. Remember to subscribe to our podcast on Spotify, Google and Apple and give us a five star rating if you would like us to. If you like to support what we do here at Asian Bitches Down Down Under, head to our Buy Me Coffee page and make a donation for us to continue the intersectionality in the podcast industry. Please follow us on Instagram for updates and share with your fellow podcast lovers. So we'll chat to you next time. Yeah, take care, guys. Stay safe. Bye. Bye.